Welcome to Help From Future Self. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Help From Future Self, episode 13. My name is Scuzzy Gruen, also known as Alex, and I am joined by my Keyforge friends, my compadres, my casual Keyforge chums. It's Boulevard Paper Fight or Coach. We call him Blake. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Help From Future Self. And our pal, the heart and soul of the podcast, it's the Wheeling Key Forger, Rick. Hey, what's up? So, glad to have you back on the podcast this week, uh, Rick. And uh, l- a little bit to chat about today, but I think we're sort of got like a format flavor going on this week, where we're going to talk about a mm-hmm. couple of different format things within Keyforge. Some that came up through uh, our friends at some of the other podcasts, and some just general thoughts in and around casual play. So, you know, it, it should be a pretty good discussion because I think that uh, uh, we've had a lot of sort of competitive talk lately and we've been thinking along those competitive lines, I think, in a lot of ways. It'll be really good to zero in on just sort of those initial uh, thoughts on casual Keyforge and really figure out what the value of just casual play is, even if you're a player who likes to play in local tournaments and maybe even in national or international tournaments. Yeah, I I think that's a, a very good point. Um so why don't we jump right into things and uh, talk about some of the news that has been floating around some of the other Keyforge groups, and that's the potential of having some of the main tournaments switch over to something called a sort of modified adaptive. So um, I don't know if everyone's familiar with this. I don't know if there's a really set in stone rules for this, but from what I understand, the rules are that it's an adaptive game that's a best of one, and each player brings one deck and you're sort of blindly choosing which deck you want to play after looking at your opponent's Archon list. And the way it will shake down is if you... I, was, I suppose the way you would do it is you have to write it down so that you can't influence the decision one way or the other. It's a kind of you write it on a piece of paper, everyone flips it over, says what they want to do. And it basically works out if two players say they want to play the same deck, you go to bidding chains for it. If uh, you choose your own deck and they choose their own deck, then it's just kind of regular Archon. And then if you each choose each other's deck, then you're basically playing reversal. So it adds a lot of different strategies, I think, in many different ways. And I'm just curious on uh, your gents' takes on sort of that whole idea. I first heard about this on an episode of Bouncing Death Quark, and I couldn't have been more excited about it when I first heard about it, Um, partially because I feel like Bidding Chains is one of those formats that is so special in Keyforge is the thing that you don't really get in other games. Like literally the ability to say, I am willing to take on this handicap in order for us to play and for, uh, you know, decks to become balanced through that system. And it's also a system that really rewards the capacity for, you know, analysis of a deck list. When you look at it and you go, this one is obviously better than the other one. And it's the one I want to play with. And then being able to say, it is worth it for me to play at this disadvantage just to get a hold of this deck versus this other deck. But unfortunately, Bidding Chains only really has come into play in one format, and it's still a format where it's not always going to be in play. You know, we played that uh, event a couple of months ago where it was technically an event where we would have done best two of three and third game Bid Chains, but I think only you, Blake, were the only one who actually got to that point. Otherwise, our games just didn't go there. So the idea of short adaptive or modified adaptive, having it built into the premise, you're either playing with your own deck or you're playing reversal or you're going immediately to a chain bid opens up so many possibilities within Keyforge. Do you bring a garbage deck and know that you're always going to bid high on your opponent's deck and make them play with trash while you play with a really good deck at a slight disadvantage or even a medium disadvantage? 
do you bring a really, really good deck and let them bid high and hope that you can go in with their pretty good deck at no chains? There's so many different options it opens up within the game, and it got me so amped up that I was like, we got to talk about this. Rick, what does that mean to you? What are you thinking when you hear, all right, you know, you get to choose between these two decks, and if you and your opponent choose the same deck, then you got to figure out who wants it more. I'm like you. It it sent a lot of things through my head, but what it was sending through my head more was ways that no matter what the situation outcome was, how would I change my strategy depending on which format we were ending up going into? And I'm still really excited to do the cha- the the bids on chains because I I'm still a little iffy on how to do that, but. I want to try it. Yeah, I've I've had, I guess, more than than the rest of us in doing chain stuff. And part of it is because I played an adaptive league specifically to get to that process, uh, and it was online. and And I and I kind of figured out that the the six chain mark is a is a level of comfort for me because I'm only losing one card. I have not gone above that yet to be losing two cards. Although I do have a deck that has, I just haven't played it yet, and I'm excited to go and uh, start experimenting at that threshold. But as you were saying, Alex, there is, I think, a psychological strategy that starts coming into play with what you are bringing and the reason why you are bringing it and the outcome you're looking to have as a result. And what happens if that outcome doesn't occur? Like, how do you pivot if you're planning on that psychological warfare, so to speak, in this uh, modified adaptive? All right, let me ask you guys this question. You're sitting down, your opponent shows you his deck list, it's a hot deck list. The deck that you brought is, okay, we'll say it's a pretty good deck, but you think in a fair fight, your opponent's deck probably going to take it. Do you jump immediately to the highest number of chains that you're willing to bid and hope that they'll go above and put themselves at a major disadvantage, like that breaking point of six chains? Do you go immediately, I bid six chains and hope that they go, fine, I bid eight, and then say, all right, it's yours, and let them take that two-card disadvantage? I myself would probably start mid. Like, I would go three chains, he would go four, then I would go six, and hopefully he would go more than that. And if if he said, okay, take it, I would really hope and pray. Yeah, for, for me, I think I would... I'd probably go from the standpoint of not right to my, my big number that I, that I want to be at the threshold, but maybe one or two below just in case they're like, oh, whoa, like I wasn't expecting that. You can have it. And I don't want to shoot myself on the foot. It's kind of like you're negotiating and you don't want to leave money on the table. And if you go too high in a way, this Mm -hmm. is almost like a reverse way because if you go too high, you essentially left money on the table. So like, oh, really? You're going to go that high? Fine, take it. Like that, you don't want to be in that point. So it's easier to just keep going and see where they go as well because how they immediately respond to you also lets you know. If without hesitation, they suddenly jump up four, you know that they're probably comfortable with that amount. And that lets you know something about their own deck that they probably have experience playing with chains on that amount of of disadvantage. Because if they're like, I think there's a level of like poker to this where you kind of need to hum and haw sometimes mm-hmm. in between your your chain bidding just to try and sell something at times. Like you need to make it feel like this is this is painful to have to make this decision and go to this level. So that they think that, okay, they're at a disadvantage because that was not an easy choice for them. So if they're going to just right away go like you're like five and they go eight, 
without hesitation, I'd be worried at that point because that means they're they're very comfortable at being at eighth because they wouldn't go there. Yep. Indeed, indeed. I think it's also easy for us to make sort of like these proclamations about what we might do in a vacuum. But the assumption is that everybody walking in who's sitting across from you probably has the same level of thought put into it that you have. And so it's really a game of, like you said, Blake, the poker. Can you bluff them? Can you really like, you know, maybe lead them to believe that you're comfortable at a higher level than you actually are so that they'll bid higher and really put themselves at a disadvantage? That's one of the things that got me so excited about this format when it was first brought up. But that's not the only format that we wanted to talk about this week. Yeah, let's let's pivot into uh, the casual side of things because we are a casual podcast and talk about three player Keyforge. I know we have touched on this before, but we have had the privilege of playing yet another game. And I've actually played a few times since then. So I realized that if you have an odd number of people, there's no point in having anyone sit out. Just uh, switch your format up. And uh, the three-player format is so much fun and has so many more levels of strategy. And I feel like what we were just talking about, that element of uh, playing poker comes into play a little bit more because there is a degree of politicking that goes on. Definitely. Now, at the particular game that we played... There was just open discussion of, hey, can you get this player off of a key? And I think that is one of the keys to the whole game is you really have to, like, everybody's your opponent, but everybody's also your ally. Mm -hmm. So it's ultimately a case of you don't just have to, like, defeat both other players. You have to occasionally work with them with the hope that you'll eventually get to a point where you can rush past whatever, you know, or even lure them into using all of their TNT against the other player and then rushing past them for the win. Yep. Now, this ended up being a bit of a grinder of a game. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, it definitely went. It was one of the longer ones for sure that I've done. Yeah. And I think a big portion of that is because AOA is set up the way AOA is. We were playing sealed three-player Keyforge with AOA decks, and we all had ways to just generally clear boards, keep people off keys, keep people from forging. Rick, your deck had a gold key imp. Yeah. So it ended up being like quite a long game, but that sort of like deepened the amount of strategy. There was also the proclamation, and I think you had an anguish out. So we actually had a bunch of things that were making keys cost more, plus not letting us forge keys, and that's kind of what was causing the game to go a little bit longer. But it also provided a higher level of strategy, which was really awesome in that format, which I hadn't experienced yet. Yeah. Now, I guess the question I would have for you, Rick, is that you were very much the player who I think was the kingmaker in a lot of ways, because... There was a lot of cases where both Blake and I were looking to you going, Rick, can you stop Blake? And Blake was going, Rick, can you stop Alex? Is there anything we can do here? And so it ended up being one of those games. Did you kind of feel like the bell of the ball? Do you feel like maybe we were kind of looking past you trying to get at the other guy? Is there value to like laying low and just sort of pushing your own agenda while throwing out a little bit here and there to the other players? I fully enjoyed being the the axis of the... Uh of the cog, I guess I would say where I had, I, I was the one where with pretty much all the power, everyone was looking to me to help them get the other player out. So I was loving it. Sometimes I wasn't really able to do much, but I was loving just having all the, all everybody coming to me saying, can you help me? Now I got to ask, were there cases where you had stuff that you could have done 
and you thought, you know what, I'm going to bluff this. Because there's a couple times I was looking at your face and I couldn't read you. And I was like, is is Rick holding something back here because he wants to save it for a later turn? Is he going to, you know, let this happen, but just so that he can use this at a later time, you know, and further his own agenda? Were you playing that kind of politic while it was going on? Actually, I don't remember, but <laughs> I don't I don't think so. However, when I read an article, I believe it was just recently that in in the rules it says you are able to quote not find something you are looking for when you search i love that idea can you give us some more context on that rick if you're if you're looking for a card in your deck and it's there you can say that it's not just to bluff your opponent uh, okay one of the big takeaways i have from playing three player is there's there's kind of two main things is the first one especially when we did it in this sealed context is that a deck that is, you could say, mediocre and not very good can sometimes be much better in this format because it is not your sole responsibility to stop someone from doing something. You have almost like a teammate at times mm-hmm. to help aid in that, and that creates the the gameplay to further itself and you to actually see your deck do different things. And then the second takeaway I've had is if you are truly playing the game properly where everyone is working to stop each other, then at the end of the game, you should almost be in a situation where everyone is in check and then something just happens that allows one other person to have the edge and win. If one person wins like three keys and the other two only have one, you've definitely not been working together in the correct way or people or one person like in the casual form was like, like, yeah, let's just play some fun decks. And one guy's like, I'm just going to bring an amazing deck and then just kind of hose the other two guys as a result. But it should be almost a unified front in a way where everyone is is so close and it's just that one move that someone has to really get themselves there, whether it's like a key cheat or a key stall until it gets to them, those sort of things. That's the one thing I've really learned with this. It was a lot of fun. I think at some point we're going to have to try and get a bunch of three-player games like rotating and sort of yeah. do a little yeah. three-player tournament. I think that it would be a lot of fun. I've also played a, a format where you just do go two keys instead of three. And I think based on our last game, that might be a uh, a smarter way of, of playing the game just because of the fact that it can grind out. And if we are playing multiple games, it may be a nice way to get quick ones going and firing regularly. Yep, I agree. All right. Time for one of our regular segments, and it's a one that we call Coach's Corner. And it's where our coach, and by that I mean mine and Rick's, but also yours... Give us a little bit of advice about how to play Keyforge better. Blake, you're the coach. What have you got for us this week? Well, this week, um, I've kind of been having some fun times that have made me... Actually, let us let me rephrase that. It's not fun times. I've had some woes and some fun times over the past course of uh, my game playing. And it's really taught me a valuable lesson about knowing what your deck does. And just being familiar with your deck, sometimes it's it's a singular strategy that you know you need this card to win, as in the case of my Grunt Buggy scenario, which I've talked about, where I needed the, the Grunt Buggy in play to allow some of my other cards to be more potent. And then there's other situations where you know your deck is going to be um, coming from behind. Like you have all that steel, so you want your opponent to have lots of Ember, and you want to allow that. Or maybe you have Archiving in Spades, in which case... You want to allow your opponent to go ahead because guess what? You're planning to have those later turns, which are really going to hose them in the long run of the game. So they get to build up that confidence only to realize that you've actually been building up the latter stages of the game to really be in your favor. So you really need to be aware of what your deck does. And on the inverse side, what your deck doesn't do. 
So you know if that starts happening, how to to basically get past it or these aren't going to fuel my end game. So I need to either pitch them or get them out of my hand now because right now I'm not in a threat. But if I hold these and I get to in a position where I am threatened, having these are not going to help me get to that end game that I want. So you need to be aware of what your game plan is. Part of that is what made me think of this as well is when we had uh, our previous episode when our friend Jonathan was on, he started talking about his sealed deck being not that great. It had poor ratings, but he still took down a tournament because he understood truly what that deck needed to do to succeed. And it wasn't to stop someone from forging. It was actually to just burst past them so that they cannot catch up to him with his binite rupture interdimensional graph with the triple binite rupture. So he just gets so much more ember that they can't do anything about it in the context of that seal tournament. And that's why you need to be aware of that. And I experienced this recently as well because I was playing a, a practice sealed uh, for the Nova Open, which I'm going to be going to at the end of the month. And I wanted to just get used to seeing cards that I haven't. And I actually got to experience that because I pulled a rats deck on uh, TCO. And I suddenly realized I was playing the game of Keyforge completely differently than what I would normally gravitate to with these rats and the way I did it. And it was just so much fun to have that discovery and that understanding that, wow, I'm not going to be doing things I normally do. I'm actually going to be kind of taking a left-hand turn here and going down the scenic tour and just seeing what happens. And it worked out so well. And I mean, I know that you have this as well, Alex, we've experienced this where there's a certain combo that can do such a phenomenal thing that you're like, wow, I actually want to get my deck to that point where I can pull off this combo because I know once I'm in that position, it puts me in a really strong advantage to take down this game. And um, I'm referring to your uh, your discovery. I think you were on the losing end of this, though, of the Nature's Call and Glimmer combo. I was. You can just essentially lock out a player. And I want to know, what was it like to be one on the discovery end on the losing side? Because I don't think that you it feels bad in a way. It's just kind of like, a wow, this is awesome. I can't believe this exists. And now I want it. So tell me about that. I actually ended up winning that game through a key cheat. If he had kept doing what he had been doing with the Glimmer and Nature's Call, I would not have been smart enough to figure out a way out of it. There is a good way out of it, which is discard the creatures. Discard all the creatures in your hand. Of course, you're probably giving up ground to your opponent, but it's a good combo and it's such a surprising one when it hit me that I didn't have any way to think through it. And later on, somebody pointed this out to me on Twitter. But with that understanding, it was so good. And at the end of the game, I said, that combo is great. That deck is so cool. And we had a nice chat about it. And you're right. When it was happening to me, I wasn't angry and I didn't feel like, oh, man, I'm locked out of the game. It wasn't like when you get, uh, you know, a double Tezmal or something like that that keeps you from being able to play. It was literally a case of this is so cool. I wish I had a deck that did that and made me start thinking about how would I play this? How would I play against this? It taught me about the game. And Rick, I know you've had some experiences where you've had decks do really cool combos that you didn't realize. And I think one of those is your your Professor Stutterkin deck that you have that you got on uh, Sealed, I believe it was a couple weeks ago. Um, and you suddenly realized there's all these cool things you could do with the deck and, and the gameplay worked from that. What was it like having that discovery? It was mind-blowing, incredible. I don't even really know how to describe it. It was just, I loved it. And I think that's what's so special about Keyforge. Is that there? There is. It is the like. I believe there's one time they they had events called the Age of Discovery. But like that is the essence of Keyforge. Is that you get to discover these amazing things that this deck is unique and it suddenly has this combination of cards in these quantities that create a situation that has not been done 
that you've been aware of before and you get to suddenly experience it for yourself and try it out. And it's just such a powerful and unique thing that we get as being privileged players of Keyforge. The um, discovery period that you spoke of just there, what if I remember correctly, was the first couple months of the game before Chainbound started. Yeah, and that's what it was. Everyone was discovering this this fantastic new game. Yep. Being aware of what a deck can do and discovering it is is one of the most powerful things. And once you understand what your deck does well, playing towards that and getting rid of cards that you know are not helping get to that end game necessarily is a very important lesson to keep in mind because if you're very aware of when I do this, I win nine times out of 10, then you know that's what you should be trying to to go towards. Yep. I mean, there's other avenues that obviously exist within every deck because there's not every deck that has four of or five of that make it very easy to do. But when it does happen and you know a way to make it happen through different deck manipulation opportunities you may have within it, it's always smart to try and play towards that and play towards your deck strengths. Sage advice. Strategies do not always come out of a box when it comes to Keyforge. There is value in figuring out what your deck wants to do. Guys, let's talk a little bit about casual Keyforge and the absolute value of playing non-competitive games of Keyforge with your Keyforge friends. We got the opportunity to do that for the first time in a long while this week, and I found that I was having a really good time, not just because it's fun to hang out with your friends and play Keyforge, but also because I found that I was playing the game in a more relaxed way. I wasn't really getting that sort of like that nervous tension of I need to win so that I could possibly place and get a prize or something else like that. It was literally just, I'm going to throw this deck out. Let's see what happens. Let's see how the game goes. Did you have fun playing casually this week? I loved it. It gave me a chance to play some new decks that I had just recently opened when I got a box from Blake and there was, there was a lot of stuff that I wanted to try out and see what it did. There was one deck that uh, you and I played, Alex. I pulled it out just to see if it was as trash as I thought it was, and I believe it was. It was a fun game, certainly. It was, it was a definitely a great game, but yeah, it it was as bad as I thought. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's always a fun discovery. I wonder if this is really that bad. Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> yep. I also really, one of the things that I thought was a lot of fun was just that opportunity to say, you know what, I've been playing these competitive decks. Let's try this deck that I don't know really much about. I haven't spent time with, and there's no stakes if I win or lose. It's literally just throw it out there and see what happens, which yep. is a thing I think that oftentimes when we talk about useless decks in our Keyforge collection, man, this thing's just gathering dust. And you think about what can I do to get some value out of this? Casual play is the place for it, man. If you know your competitive decks are good, if you've been grinding them online, if you've been taking them to the Crucible, if you've been taking them to uh, a Tabletop Online, if you've been taking them to local tournaments, you know what? You can put them aside for a night and just play the other stuff that you never, ever play. Sometimes it's fun to pull out a deck you don't even remember what it does and see what happens. Yeah, I'm I'm totally on board with that one. That's that's why I like casual play. I mean, like you you pretty much hit up all the points that I I love it is the the mental the mental vacation you get to have with not having to just constantly be in that optimal brain space of just like okay, what's going on here? How am I going to combat this? Like you can allow yourself to to just chill and if some, you do something wrong, whatever, just move on and have fun. And it gives you that opportunity to play those decks that you know what, you may be like man, this deck in this house has this amazing combination of cards that I love playing, but the Ember Control is not here. So if I bring this to a, to a Chainbound event, I know I can't put my, my friends or opponents off keys, 
But in the casual format, you don't have to worry about that because you can just allow it to play out and you you may lose, but you're going to get to see those cards that you love in it come together and do those fun things. And that's what makes it so special. Yep. Getting close to the end of the show, but of course we have a recurring segment that we would like to talk about. It's something we call Help, Help from, future, from self. future Self. And it's where we share a little KeyForge lesson that we learned this week. And this week's all me. This one's a very simple one, but it's one that has burnt me so many times and I have to continuously remind myself about it. When you're looking at your hand, whether it's online or in person, don't just look at the art. Read the name of the card. I love the art in KeyForge, but it is absolutely the case where a lot of sanctum cards and a lot of discards and even a lot of shadows cards look the same as other cards within the same house and the number of times i have boned myself by thinking oh yeah that's this when it was actually something else entirely is not inconsiderable if i had read the name of the card rather than just looking at the picture using that mental shorthand i wouldn't have got myself into that scenarios so at the beginning of your turn even though it seems like an obvious thing to do, just go through all the cards in your hand and look at the actual name to make sure that you've got the card you think you do. Very good advice. I've caught myself doing that before. I'm like, oh, wait a second. That wasn't what I thought. That's it for yet another episode of Help from Future Self. You can find us on Twitter at HFFS Podcast. I am at Scuzzy Gruen on Instagram and Twitter. Where can they find you, Blake? You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and as well, uh, doing an article, my premiere one will be this week for Archon's Corner. And uh, I'm at Boulevard Paper Fight. That's BLVD Paper Fight. Shout out to Homeboy the Wookiee. Where can we find you, Rick? I am on Twitter at The Wheeling Key Forger. All right. That's it for yet another episode of Help from Future Self. We'll be back again next week with more casual Keyforge chat for your Keyforge brain. Thanks very much for listening. And as always, stay forging.